roasting coffee in Malaysia, chocolate-covered coffee beans, and traveling with a coffee pot. This week, it's all about coffee tourism. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This is where we explore the cuisine of the world at DestinationEatDrink.com, on the Destination Eat Drink YouTube channel, and here on the Destination Eat Drink podcast. This week, we're exploring the phenomenon of coffee tourism with Rebecca Chauvel. But first, if you like Destination Eat Drink and travel and food, please rate and review the podcast. Giving us five stars helps us get the word out to other foodie travelers just like you. And thank you very, very much. Rebecca Chauvel is a coffee expert who plans her travel around the Tasty Bean. We talk about coffee in far-flung places like Malaysia, Vietnam, Costa Rica, Hawaii, and Cuba. Rebecca tells me about learning the roasting process, deconstructed lattes, and green coffee. Plus, she tells me about the economic and labor issues surrounding coffee production. And if you're planning a trip to New York, Rebecca shares some great Java recommendations in the city. And finally, Rebecca talks about the organization Not Just Tourists, a group that works to bring medical supplies to people in need around the world. Okay, I haven't had my first cup yet, so let's get brewing. Destination Eat Drink. Rebecca Chauval, welcome to Destination Eat Drink. I've been excited to talk coffee with you ever since uh, we decided to do this interview. Um, welcome to the show, first of all. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. I'm all caffeinated up, so oh, good. we're good to go. <laughs> all right, perfect. <laughs> you know, I, I think about coffee, and it's one of those things that's nearly ubiquitous in our lives. I'm in Portugal now. There's a, a coffee place every 15 feet, it seems. Um, <laughs> and I'd like to talk about some of the places that you visited. But first, just give me an idea. What is it about coffee specifically that resonates with you that made it such a uh, such a big part of your travel life? You know, I've, I've always really liked coffee. I would say I, I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania, and most of my exposure pre-college was to basically terrible coffee or slightly less than terrible coffee. Uh, I definitely remember, you know, being 16 and drinking the gas station coffee, which just <laughs> horrifies me now. Um, but and then getting to college, I went to college in Ithaca, New York, and there was already this was the early 2000s. Um, and, you know, coffee was third wave coffee, the sort of specialty high end coffee was really just becoming a thing in the US. And having kind of the first ever really great coffee I had, which was from a place called Gimme Coffee, which is a roaster that still operates out of Ithaca, New York. And it was sort of this, you know, one of those food memories where like the heavens open up and angels sing and you're just like, oh my God, this is why people drink coffee. This is why this is a like world phenomenon. Everything else I've been drinking is nonsense. Um, and it just really started me down this path of enjoying coffee and seeking it out in many different ways um, that I'll go into more detail. But I would just add, you know, it is, I recognize, I think the sort of health benefits of coffee are all over the place, depending on your perspectives. But it is also sort of an addictive stimulant. Um, you know, I think a pretty mild one in terms of the list, but uh, 
you know, can't, once you start drinking it, it's hard to go without doing so. You know, I see kids drinking lots of coffee, even high school kids and younger drinking coffee. I never, I never got into it in college. Like I tried to drink coffee in college and I could never do it. And so when Mm. I needed to stay up late, I would be like, uh, this, this, this is dating me how far back I go. Uh, I would take Nodos, which was a caffeine stimulant pill. Um, that was sold. I do remember that. Yes. Yeah. It was over the counter, you know, it was that <laughs> mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and Mountain Dew and, you know, just trying to, trying to stay awake for me. I never got into coffee until I went to Italy the first time and I was in my, mm. in my early thirties when that happened. So, um, and then it was same thing. Like you were describing Rebecca, the heavens opened up and I was like, that's it. <laughs> and it's been, it's been trying to chase that dragon ever, ever since. Um, you know, on this podcast, we talk all the time about food tourism, whether it's, you know, street food in Vietnam, wine in Italy, tacos in Texas. Um, but I never really thought that much about coffee tourism. I talk a lot about coffee on the show, but this idea of traveling to learn more about coffee, I hadn't really thought about it that much. I was like, okay, well, coffee is always part of where I travel to. But I never thought about specifically going somewhere for the coffee. And that's bad on me because, you know, I travel all the time to go get specific uh, dishes and uh, to get uh, different kinds of wine. And I'm just wondering, did this idea pop into your head of coffee tourism? Was it something that uh, someone turned you on to? How did you get into it? No, I, I did sort of stumble backwards into it. I will say that starting, you know, sort of from a pretty young, you know, age or, or, uh, you know, in college and and right after when I did do kind of, you know, mostly domestic tourism and it was really, you know, traveling to visit friends and family, things like that, I would seek out different coffee roasters and good coffee in different cities in the U.S. Um, But the first time I really did something like that abroad, uh, where, where I really sought out the coffee beans. I actually didn't. I was in Costa Rica. It was 2015, the end of 2015 with a friend. We were doing pretty normal, honestly, touristy things. Um, And one of the, you know, sort of tours being offered was a coffee plantation. And I thought, oh, my God, that's so cool. You know, I've never really thought about that. Um, and you know, I knew that you couldn't grow coffee anywhere near anywhere I had ever lived, right? There's no coffee grown in the mainland of the US. There's very little grown in North America at all. Um, and so when we were in Costa Rica, we did this little coffee tour where you get to go and you meet coffee farmers and you get to pick the berries and kind of hear a lot of different details. And it really just made me realize, okay, this is obviously an interest to some other people as well. I can probably try to go seek this out. Um, and really focus on where I want to try the different coffee. And that led me to both sort of seek out places, like I figured out a way to go to Hawaii, um, sort of about a year later, uh, to the Kona region, which is some very epic coffee that we can talk about more later. Um, And then really continuing on, either seeking things out specifically, you know, it kind of turns out if you're open-minded, you can plan your vacations or your travel around almost anything. And so I have made coffee one of the things that I I plan my travel around. Let's talk briefly about Costa Rica, because when when I 
start thinking about coffee tourism, a lot of these places seem very far flung, whether they're in Africa or far away Asia. Costa Rica seems like this would be a good place for a beginner to go because it's just accessible. I mean, when we lived in Austin, Texas, they had direct flights going down to Costa Rica. I don't know if they still do, but Costa Rica is a place that people can get to fairly easily from uh, mainland uh, U.S. Um, would you recommend this is a good place for folks to go to maybe start their coffee adventure? I, well, I do think it is a very easy place to get to from the U.S. and Canada. Um, I would probably say no. I mean, if you just want to dip your toes in and you're planning on going to Costa Rica anyway, I do think it can be a good place. Costa Rica has a lot of tourism, and I think, unfortunately, a lot. It's been there for so long, and it's disrupted the country so much that a lot of things are really geared towards tourism. So they don't have a lot of the same large-scale agriculture um, as some, you might be able to see in some other places. And the tour, at least the one that I was able to find. Now, I haven't been there in a few years. I, you know, I always really recommend to people... Make sure you read things that were written post-COVID, post-pandemic, um, or, you know, talk to people who have been there since then. So it's possible things have changed a bit. But I do think if you go to Costa Rica, you'll see it, but you'll get a bit more of a curated experience. When we lived in Hawaii, we lived in Oahu, not on the big island, but I, I guess I didn't really fully realize before we moved there, um, you know, that coffee was part of agriculture there. And it's really the only state in the union where they can successfully grow coffee commercially. Um, I liked uh, when we would fly over to Maui, we'd go to this place called Maui Grown Coffee. And I think they're still around. I don't think they still offer tours of the farm anymore. Um, I think they were undergoing some uh, difficulty with, uh, with pest management there. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. I'd, I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about Kona coffee, because in Hawaii, um, that's the major producer, uh, is the coffee from the Kona region. Absolutely. I know Hawaii is a very expensive place to go visit. I, I wouldn't pretend otherwise. But if you have the opportunity, I do think for Americans, it's probably one of your best options. Um, it's actually not so bad if you're coming from East Asia either, because it's so far in the middle. Um but it's just a truly, it's an area, it's, first of all, it's absolutely gorgeous, as if you've been there, you know. I mean, it's many coffee regions are very pretty because coffee tends to be grown at high altitude. This isn't exactly high altitude, but it has these crazy hillside views of the ocean. Um, and the land in Hawaii, the physical soil is so unique to there. And it produces some just incredible results from the coffee. And there are a lot of relatively small plantations, coffee farms near each other that you can get to on, you know, some American style roads. You can rent a car and drive to them, which is pretty convenient. And on like a wine tour, you don't have to worry about uh, how you're going to drive home afterwards. I mean, you might be shaking from the caffeine, but, you know, <laughs> um, I mean, that was really my first experience seeking it out. And I think it's just an incredible place to do it because there are a lot of uh, farms pretty close together um, in the Kona region on the big island in Hawaii. Um, you can fly there. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how much you can fly directly there from 
the mainland, but it's very easy to fly there from Honolulu, um, which is what I did, and then rent a car. And, you know, uh, many of the farms offer tours, um, and I would say they're varying levels of how in-depth they are. And I think a lot of times the best thing to do is to be kind of the first day, go and check out a few, see who you can strike up conversations with, who might be interested in telling you more or, you know, providing you uh, further education and experience beyond the average, you know, hour to two hour um, prepared tour. It's obviously helpful to most of us that they speak English. Um, so that's not something you're going to find in a lot of coffee regions in the world <laughs> as well. Um, and, you know, people were very welcoming and excited, I, I think. They do also, you're going to get a real education alongside of it with the sort of history of coffee in Hawaii. You know, coffee in almost anywhere other than like Ethiopia that you're going to t experience this has been brought there generally by colonists. And so there you get a lot of that history. You get a decent amount of the history, the sort of modern labor rights issues around coffee, which is almost entirely an export product. Um, now from Hawaii, that's just to the mainland or a lot of it's consumed on the islands in Hawaii themselves. Um, but it's still, you know, this high end product with a legacy of having been, you know, brought by colonists to be produced in places where it's not native to. Um, and you'll also learn a lot about the ecology of the area. You talked about pest management problems. That's definitely something that's an issue in almost any agriculture, but so coffee has its own problem and coffee is grown in large quantities altogether. So that can be very problematic. If there's one infestation, it can really ruin whole crops, whole areas, even potentially, I mean, this is very extreme, but like it can spread throughout the region because coffee tends to be grown in areas together, right? You know, it, it occurs to me that um, the same regions where coffee is grown are also hospitable to growing cacao, uh, chocolate. And because I know Hawaii has a nice uh, native chocolate industry. Of course, Costa Rica does too. Vietnam uh, does too. Uh, another coffee region that is also good with chocolate. Uh how, how do you like to uh, how do you like to pair your chocolate with your coffee? And you ever you ever go on a uh, on a chocolate tour for that matter? I've never been on like an official chocolate tour. Um, I will say in in Colombia, which is another place where yes, like it does tend to be coffee, chocolate, bananas, and pineapples. Which so those are also things that you see in Hawaii. Um, tend to grow and macadamia nuts are another one that tend to grow in mm. a very similar climate right, right. i don't know how exactly all of that came to be but uh you know certainly the nature of those plants plays into it i i've been on some where you know if they're, if they're growing a more diverse crop um where we got to experience some of that my favorite way with coffee chocolate together is chocolate covered coffee beans mm. um that is uh i think they're delightful they have a lot of, in my experience, a lot of caffeine when you eat them right. instead of having the coffee. So the actual ratio of coffee beans that you're consuming is much lower. This is just advice to anyone who's about to go out and buy coffee beans or sees them and thinks why they come in such small packages. It is so much less than you would put in your coffee machine to make a cup of coffee. Um, and yes, actually, there's a there are some places in in Kona that do some really delicious chocolate covered coffee beans. 
And sometimes in the winter, I will order them and they will ship them to me. They are <laughs> they are smart enough to not ship them in the summer, which the first time I heard, I thought, what What does it matter? And then remembered, oh, right, it's extremely hot there and chocolate melts. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the uh, coffee roasting process. Um, you know, because I, I, roasting is probably the most important step in coffee production because, you know, a poor roast can ruin good beans and even though a great roast can't save bad beans, roasting is super <laughs> important. Um, ta- give us a little primer on coffee roasting, but also, uh, you know, the different kinds of roasts and what kind of stuff do you look for when you go into a uh, coffee roaster? So most coffee um, on site after it's harvested is dried to about 12% moisture content. At this point, it's referred to gr- as green coffee. And this is basically how coffee is shipped. It's how coffee is stored and how it's shipped. So if they were going to roast it on site, like say at a coffee farm in Hawaii, that's what they would keep it at until they were ready to actually sell it um, or roast it. And if they're going to be shipping it, say from Colombia up into the United States, it'll be shipped at that green coffee level. And then it's ideally gets to its end destination and is roasted as as quickly to when you're drinking it as possible. Um, So I would say the first thing is you want it to be as freshly roasted as possible. If you can go into a coffee shop that's roasting coffee and then drink it, you know, that's probably the apex of what the flavors you're going to bring out. Because as soon as you roast it, it does start to a little bit not go bad because coffee doesn't really go bad once roasted, but it starts to lose a little bit of its flavor and essential essence or nuance about itself. Something I really look for is more lightly roasted coffee. I tend to, just as just my flavor profile, uh, be a big fan of medium roast coffees. Um, I like ones that are more in the uh, vanilla or, you know, when they say like what the flavors are on the bag, sometimes it feels like nonsense. A lot of times I think it might be. Um, but you know, flavors that you want, I I don't necessarily want my coffee to taste super chocolatey. Some people like it more fruity and there are some really great batches out there that I've had that do, you know, say that they taste like berries on them. For example, I think a lot of it is just trying as much coffee as you can and figuring out what you really like. A lot of sort of the second wave coffee that was popular in the United States from about the sixties and seventies until the early two thousands. And it's still very common at Starbucks, for example, is very darkly roasted coffee. This produces a very even product, so it's easy for them to make all the drinks taste the same way, which obviously has benefits. And I can tell you that some people, my mother is one of them, I have tried to you know, get her to drink the coffee I drink, and she really prefers the darker roast, um, the more intense, often espresso is roasted this way. You know, again, this is very much preference, right? Like like the kind of beers that you want to drink or which which type of wine you prefer. Um, but the more you try, the more you'll be able to recognize different varietals from different countries, different styles of how it was um, cleaned after the process that comes after it's harvested and as well as the process it's roasted. Um, a lot of times if a pretty nice coffee roaster or maybe even a cafe in your town might offer cuppings. 
if you ask at the coffee roaster, even if they don't promote them publicly, it's possible, you know, they'd be willing to set up one with you and a few friends. And this is basically like a wine tasting where you go and they make very small amounts of a few different kinds of coffee and you taste it in tiny cups. <laughs> this is so fascinating because it really does get down to preference, right? Um, I'm I'm usually careful to say it doesn't make it bad. It just means it's something that you don't prefer. And for me, you know, you can talk about this with wine. You can talk about this with a lot of different things. Um, but with coffee, for me, for myself, there is a certain roaster, a, a mass-produced roaster here in Portugal that services, I don't know, definitely more than 50% of the places that, uh, that serve coffee here. And mm -hmm. I personally do not like it. And if I see that uh, logo on someone's awning, I pass by because I know I don't like it. And I'm not sure whether they it's over extraction or what the problem is. But every time I have it, there's this sour aftertaste that I really that is really um, off putting to me. So we're talking. So we're talking about preferences here. Um and I did want to ask you, because you're a New Yorker now, you talked about growing up in Pennsylvania and going to school in upstate New York, but you're a New Yorker now. Um, and yes. New York is certainly a coffee city. Do you have any uh, recommendations for folks who are going to New York? What are some of the uh, nice third wave places where we can get a really good cup? Absolutely. I've lived in New York for uh, 14 years, and I have actually really watched it change from being the kind of place like much of the US where you had to seek out really good coffee to somewhere you can get it on almost any neighborhood. You know, there's at least pretty good coffee within a few blocks of you, no matter where you are. A place I really enjoy in the East Village um, on Fifth Street uh, is called Coffee Project. They have very good coffee and they also have a lot of different um, coffee extraction methods so that the actual end product right of, of making the coffee you can use you can choose some different types they have some fancy options if you want they also just have like here's a cup of coffee uh you know or here's a americano if you prefer they also do something called a deconstructed latte where uh they put the coffee and the milk and the um sort of at different levels so you can see how you might actually want it. I'm not someone who generally drinks milk and coffee, but it was fun to experiment with the different types of sort of amounts that you you might put in or experiences you might have with the steamed milk and the regular milk and the foam from the milk. Um, you know, not forgetting that there's just so many different kinds of, we talked about preferences and obviously a big part of that is also how you order your coffee. I am a iced Americano or cold brew person. Cold brew particularly is what I always make at home and nothing against uh, any of the other delicious coffee drinks out there. And I think it's sometimes worth noting that different kinds of coffee are best in different drinks. Another place that I would recommend, it's a roaster in New York called City of Saints uh, out of Brooklyn. Another good New York roaster, they actually roast um, slightly upstate, but they have a few locations in New York, is Irving Coffee Farm. New York is so neighborhood heavy and there are, you know, some New York chains like Grumpy, which some people might be familiar with from the television show Girls that has some locations around New York. Um, and but really, I think it's it's if you're coming to New York, 
seek out as many different places as you can try as many different coffee as you can. I, I think that would really be true in almost any major city and a lot of medium sized city in the U S today. There's just going to be some really great local coffee and try as much as possible to try the local coffee roasters, not just to support local, but also because it will be the freshest coffee you can have. You know, if you go to Asheville or Austin or San Francisco, you know, anything roasted in that town is just much more likely to be fresh than something that had to come across the country. It's funny that you mentioned a deconstructed latte because it made me think about uh, one of the coffees that I, I, I normally drink espresso here in Portugal, but a lot of times I, I don't want that intensity. So I'll get, mm. um, it's, it's not called an Americano here. It's called an abatinado. And it just mm. means, um, you know, espresso with, with more water in it. But uh, going to Spain and also recently going to Italy, I had this happen twice. I asked for an Americano and they served it in, they served an espresso in a large coffee cup with a side of hot water, like a, a, a pot of hot water, like you'd get with tea. And I guess the that idea- is lovely. Yeah, it really is kind of cool. And I guess the idea is, hey, you know how much water you want in this. I'm not going to presume to show you how much water to put into it. You decide. And so you add the water to your preference and then you, uh, you drink it your way. And like I said, I had it happen in Seville and I had it happen in Milan. So it's not just happening in Italy, just happening in Spain. It happened, it's happened in the two places that I've most recently visited outside of, uh, outside of Portugal. Interesting, I thought. It is interesting. And Italy is so heavily associated with like the triumph of coffee and the sort of like proliferation of, of high-end coffee in the late 20th century. But then uh, some other countries, uh, South Korea, for example, and Australia, really took the reins in the high-end coffee and the especially really starting a lot of the third wave elements like uh, seeking out direct relationship with coffee farmers and really focusing on the quality of the bean and the sustainability of the farming practices. Uh, the United States and Canada also have had a decent amount of that early on. And I think some of that came a bit later to Europe, in my experience, because I think because there already was quite good coffee, they weren't starting as low. So, you know, you kind of move up and down as things uh, improve, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Because you see in Italy, even though you can get really, really good coffee almost everywhere in Italy, a lot of it is by these big roasters, you know, whether mm -hmm. it's... Um, Illy or who, whoever it happens to be. Um, so, but they do a good job. Um, and I think that's kind of a testament to the pride that the baristas take in being very meticulous with how they make uh, each cup of coffee, my opinion. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. The, the Everyone involved in the process does have a lot of control over ruining it. I think it's sort <laughs> of what you were saying. It's It's hard to take a, a coffee that's already bad and make it good. But, you know, it's the the farming styles and the production is important. How you pick the berries is important. How you process them matters. How you store them, how you roast them, how you, you know, make the coffee, particularly like if you're using an espresso machine. Uh, it all takes a lot of skill and it may be repetitive, but it's 
if you don't do it right, you know, really any way, any step along the way can ruin the whole thing. You get sour, bitter coffee. Yep. Let's talk about a few of the places that you visited that are known as, as coffee producers. They're growing the coffee plants. They're harvesting the beans. Um, you went to Malaysia. You roasted coffee there. Tell me about that a little bit. Yes, that was actually just earlier this year. I spent a few months um, the beginning of the year in this is 2023, in case you're listening to it in the future. In the cold months, I like to leave New York. And this past winter, I would spend some time in Southeast Asia. I was in Malaysia, which is a very foodie country. Um, people are very into food as a whole in, in the culture. It's a diverse country. And that's one of the things that ties people together is being very excited about food and their food. And that does extend to a certain extent to coffee. Um, and I was able to take a coffee roasting course at, it's a coffee school. They do license people or perhaps that's not exactly the right term, but, you know, credential people for the different kinds of international coffee standards. Um, and it's Malaysia. So it's actually all in English, Malaysia it's a former British colony, and while people speak many different languages in the country, in public they often speak English, particularly because they don't necessarily speak the same language as other people at home, right? So based on the, the, the immigration 100 plus years ago uh, into Malaysia that continues to today, uh, which is a long way of saying it's a good place to go if you're trying to take classes or things like that, because they care a lot about the quality, they're very interested in delicious things. Um, and it's very helpful that they all speak English extremely well. Um, and I was able to, you know, really learn on some professional equipment. And then they also have some small equipment that sort of resembles what you could theoretically maybe more have at home if you wanted. Um, in a lot of countries where the equipment, because a lot of the really high-end equipment is basically priced for wealthy countries. And so in some of the less wealthy countries, people are much more likely to share that equipment. Um, so here I'm talking about the coffee roaster. Uh, and, you know, really getting to have the experience of using the professional machines, setting it to different settings, you know, you're probably going to ruin your first batch, hmm. um, see how hard it is to get it even see the different experiences of the exact same green coffee. So again, that's the unroasted processed, but unroasted coffee that comes in from other countries. So you can try the same coffee, light roasted, medium roasted, dark roasted, and see both how, how difficult it can be when you're a novice to get them to those levels, but then also see the different tastes that are brought out by the different roasts of the exact same bean. Um, and really, if you are a coffee roaster professionally, one of the things you're going to do when you try new beans from a new farm or a new batch, you know, year after year is experiment in that way and see how it really, which one brings out the best flavor. And then ideally you'll also match that with different methods of coffee extraction. So pour over or drip coffee, espresso, and see if that, you know, one tastes better, you know, the light, medium, dark roast with that style. Um, so there's just so many elements that go into that. And I think it was, if you're interested in coffee, it's the kind of thing that can just be a really amazing experience to expand your understanding both of 
a lot of the nuance of coffee and just how much work goes into the process, which I think is the more I learned about coffee, just the more I realized, oh my gosh, every cup is actually a huge deal. And, you know, we should all be so grateful for all of the people who put effort in along the way. It's so true. It's it's that way with a lot of agricultural products. I remember back in the day when uh, when I used to do a little bit of winemaking, you know, just as a hobby. Mm. And, you know, the dream was always, oh, I'm going to get a vineyard in Italy and I'm going to make wine. And then you do it for a couple of seasons and you realize this is really freaking hard work <laughs> and I'll just go buy a bottle, you know? <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit about Cuba because you visited Cuba and this must have been at a time before travel was more restrictive um, because coffee from Cuba is not legal in the U.S., but so I've never tasted it. Tell me about going to Cuba, Cuban coffee, Cuban coffee beans. It was very recently, actually. It was just uh, in 2022. Travel to Cuba. Co- so I, I don't think I've ever had. I mean, I've had a lot of things referred to as Cuban coffee in Florida, in the United States, which is basically espresso with a lot of sugar and sometimes a little bit of cream. Um, but I, I've i never seen anything sort of labeled as being coffee from Cuba. It's not really one of their exports, I don't believe. Anyway, they mostly export, even if you're in a different country, tobacco. Um, but I was in Cuba and we went, did a farm visit where you, you know, stay with some farmers and they show you uh, via horseback, which is how they get around. It's an, it's another world in Cuba. And, um, you know, they show you the farms and a lot of the different things they make. And while coffee, they basically just produce coffee for themselves to consume. A lot of these people are tobacco farmers, but they do some somewhere between homesteading and, and sustainable agriculture, you know, to, to feed themselves and the community around them. Uh, it's not large scale monocropping. Um, and so they have a few coffee trees that they uh, keep for themselves. And it's interesting because it's grown in not ideal conditions um, in terms of it being basically at sea level. They are definitely not coffee experts and they are, well, they may be drinking coffee experts, but they're not sort of part of the international coffee scene at all. Right. And um, you know, it, it was interesting to see it grown in small scale. And it was interesting to see a lot of it's being roasted there uh, in old style metal bowls on stoves. Um, can send you some pictures because I don't think I'm going to be able to describe it super well. But um, basically imagine a walk okay. over a high heat. And uh, well, I guess it could be anyone, but it seems to mostly be older women with wooden spoons just sitting there kind of sifting the coffee around um, to roast it. Oh. And it doesn't produce any a lot of the things that, you know, you'd seek out in maybe high end coffee today. Um, but it is a, a really interesting experience um, to be so close to all of it and to have it be something that they consume directly, um, whereas a lot of coffee farmers actually don't necessarily have that experience um, because coffee can be so such an expensive product. Um, and yes, the, you know, again, this is farms with a few trees um, and then they're next to other uh, fruits and vegetables that they're growing for their own consumption. And 
yeah, they just have a lot of the tools of the 1950s to cook it, to grind it. They're using what we would probably refer to as basically pour over coffee um, using like a, a fabric like udder and, you know, where you put the beans in and then you pour the water over. Um, and this is, you know, they just never really uh, had all the variations of coffee makers um, that, that we've gone through in this country um, and kind of actually ironically ended up one of the popular methods today is, you know, somewhat similar to that. Uh, so we're just going backwards or back to where they started. It's interesting that um, you've got these coffee farmers who are consuming the product because in some of the other episodes on the podcast, I've talked to folks and they've said, well, you know what, they grow the coffee, but they don't really drink it. Um, you know, we don't really mm -hmm. have a coffee culture here. And I was talking to uh, Yong Ho from um, Saigon, Vietnam, and he told me it's just now starting to pick up uh, with the locals in the last uh, couple of decades and he was telling me about something called egg coffee, which is uh, <laughs> egg yolks spun in with sugar, condensed milk, and robusta coffee. Um, I think you've been to Vietnam, right? Did you try egg coffee when you were there? I do believe I had that. You know, everywhere has different coffee drinks and some of, you know, if you think about that, it's sort of when you first hear it, it sounds a little crazy, but then mm -hmm. you're like, okay, well, it's sort of somewhere between a uh, whiskey sour and a milkshake and coffee right um those ingredients and yes particularly so robusta is considered to be a bit more bitter it's a much more higher production coffee um in terms of the plants it has more caffeine in it it's the kind most heavily grown in vietnam um and i i think that you know those drinks are my experience with a lot of those drinks is it's not something i'm going to start drinking every day but it's a fun experience to have when you travel, uh, you know, to see what people have done with them. Uh, going back to your earlier point, I, yes, oftentimes coffee is a very high value product. It is largely produced in less economically developed countries and consumed in wealthy countries. Um, and so oftentimes in the places it's produced, it's sort of too expensive to keep much of it back for the farmers or the people around them who grow, which is very unfortunate uh, that that's true. And it's definitely a part of the the politics and the labor issues around coffee that you almost always see when you visit coffee farms. I mean, people are very quick to talk about some of those matters. Um, and I think it really stems from this being coffee being such a heavily exported product and really something that's sent from you know the, the coffee belt basically around the world. Uh, where it's hot, uh, to everywhere else in the world to consume. Fascinating. Like so many raw materials throughout the world and agricultural products, uh, there, there's the haves and the have-nots, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think one of the things, the, the two probably biggest things that separate coffee out, well, the enormous consumption of coffee, right? I mean, coffee is a huge product that's consumed in very large quantities in many countries. Um, and most of those countries, you know, from the U.S. to Italy to Japan, you just cannot grow coffee inside of them except for maybe some very little spot like Hawaii, you know, or some very like uh, southern other, you know, island or territory of one of those countries. Um, but, you know, most of where it's consumed, Scandinavia, for example, you know, there's just really almost nothing you could do to grow coffee in those places. So it has to be exported. 
um, or imported to them. And then again, it is also such a largely consumed item, more so than, right, bananas have a very similar trajectory, but, you know, every adult is not consuming uh, two to three of them a day. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, th I think I probably had the same reaction to uh, egg coffee that you did, Rebecca, in that you're like, oh, that sounds a little bit odd. But then I, I sort of thought about it for a second. I thought, well, egg yolks and sugar, that's like a custard. That's how we make mm -hmm. pastel donatas here in Portugal. And we always have a coffee with a pastel donata. So maybe, maybe they're just, you know. <laughs> putting those two things together and, and making it a lot easier to uh, get your fix of egg, sugar, and coffee together instead of in two dishes, you get them in one. But um, That's a fun thought. Yeah. I do love that dish, that Portuguese dish. Yes. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I think, and I think that the, my experience with that Vietnamese coffee drink was pleasant. Again, it, you know, it was, this is quite delicious, but much like many dessert items, you're just like, okay, but I'm, I'm not going to start to, ideally, I'm not adding this to my repertoire every day. Hmm. Um, I will also say we, I, when I travel, especially if I'm traveling to a place that I don't know the quality of the coffee, but really even when I travel domestically, I carry around a plastic Japanese cold brew pitcher. That's what it's called. If you want to look it up on the internet, they're made of plastic. Uh, it seals quite well. So it's very good for travel. And I do sometimes, depending on where I'm going, travel with my own beans, or I will go to local coffee shops um, and buy you know, locally roasted beans, if that's something that's available. And uh, that I think a really great way to have good coffee wherever you are, which of course does not stop me from sampling all the local products. It's just uh, a good backdrop fail safe, especially if you're going to be traveling for extended periods of time, as I often do. Yeah, that is yeah. getting that's Plastic getting coffee maker. <laughs> that's getting serious, <laughs> man. That is getting to a serious. <laughs> yes, level. I know. I know it's unlikely. I just think a lot of people are like, well, I can't travel with my French press, so right. There are some plastic versions of that uh, of those sorts of things out there in the world. I know. I know. It's. I'm a weirdo, but I love coffee so much. And that's why I'm here talking hey, to you about man, it. Hey, man, whatever you got to do. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I saw I saw a gadget in Milan. They have a, a shop that's dedicated to the mocha, you, you know, the, the little uh, stovetop coffee espresso maker. Mm. And, you know, that thing would maybe be too heavy and too bulky to travel with. But they had a smaller version which I'm going to try and describe it here, and it's it, hopefully you can understand what I'm saying. It has the part where you put the espresso in, but it doesn't have the percolating pot part. Instead, it has two little tubes that come up, and you put your cup directly underneath it. So there's no reservoir where the uh, espresso gathers. Instead, it goes directly into your cup. So you've taken away all of that volume that would be storing the um the the coffee in and you've gotten rid of it and i looked at that and i thought well first of all it's a cool italian design right because the italians are great designers mm -hmm. but second of all it's like you could almost carry that in a little uh, plastic bag and take it with you uh if you were traveling as long as you could get like a hot plate or something i guess <laughs> yes no and i think yeah that sounds really cool i actually just like to see that uh too yeah experience what that would be like the AeroPress is another tiny one, well, relatively speaking, um, that can also be, that was sort of my first like realization. Oh, you could probably maybe travel with one of these things a few years ago because you just need the little, but again, that's something you would need hot water for. Right. Um, right. 
but you know, hot water is usually relatively easy to get. Yeah. Compared to some other things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, at least they're going to have like a teapot in most, you know, ho hotel rooms or Airbnbs or whatnot. Um, mm -hmm. Exactly. So let's go to Columbia. You know, when I was growing up in the 70s, <laughs> back in the, the olden days, that was really, Columbia was on this huge advertising kick in the United States, you know, talking about Colombian coffee. And I thought as a, as a little kid growing up, this was the only place where they grew coffee, that it was the only place that coffee <laughs> was from. But Colombia is, they're a huge coffee producer, right? Colombia is a huge coffee producer. And, you know, you spoke about the 70s and then there was a, some decades in the middle where Colombia had uh, some civil strife internally. And I, I'm not trying to downplay that. It, it was very difficult for a lot of people. But they've really come out of that period and are very excited about having tourists back, about pe having people come in from other countries to see their country. I think because for so long it was really there were almost nobody was coming in internationally. And I think that often that can play into your experience in countries if people are like, yes, please let us tell you about our culture and our lands. And uh, there's a lot of great places to visit in Colombia, and one of them I went for my birthday about two years ago. Um, I was uh, spent a couple, about two months living in Colombia, and it's very easy to fly domestically in Colombia from Bogota or Medellin or some of the other cities to the coffee region. It's a area that's uh, very agricultural and very popular internally uh, for tourism, for sort of farm well, more just like being in the country style tourism, right? Being getting out of the city. Um, and it is very high altitude, like much of Colombia, which is great for growing coffee. Uh, very, you're at the equator. So there's a lot of sun and a lot of heat. Um, but the altitude makes it a lot cooler. And there's just this whole area called the internally called the coffee triangle, which involves a few cities, actually, a few different states in within Colombia are part of that. And there is just incredible coffee, as well as some other agriculture and gorgeous mountain views. And um, there's a decent amount of tourism, but the coffee, the international tourism is relatively new and the coffee tourism is relatively new. And I just will say, if you are leaving Medellin in Colombia, it's really important. It's pretty important to speak Spanish. So if you don't go learn some Spanish uh, or... <laughs> maybe bring someone with you who speaks Spanish. It is not a very English speaking place. I do speak Spanish, so that was fine. But uh, I was, you know, there was literally situations I was with people who didn't and the people who worked at the front desk at the hotel didn't speak English, that sort of a thing. It's uh, has not been, it has not gotten so touristy yet as to uh, be English speaking, which can be a lovely experience. Um, and you can go on some very in-depth farm tours with people in Colombia, I think they're sort of just getting to the realization point of, oh, there's kind of more money to be made in coffee tourism than just in making coffee. Right. Um, so uh, that's, a, it, that's an interesting inflection point in any uh, industry, in any tourism place. Um, but it's still, I know Colombia can seem far, but there's a lot of direct flights to Cartagena and Bogota and Medellin from the United States. And then it's just a very short, very inexpensive domestic flight to the coffee region. 
Um, and in addition to coffee, you can have some great food experiences. Horseback riding is also a big thing there. I don't know why horseback and coffee go so well together, but they seem to, um, and just some really incredible mountain views. They are dedicated enough to their coffee that they actually have a coffee themed amusement park in that region of Colombia. Um, (laughs) yes, Parque de Café. And, uh, it's sort of like, you know, Hershey Park, but coffee instead. Um, so you can go on a roller coaster where they have planted coffee beans, uh, coffee plants around it so that you are, you know, as you're on the roller coaster, you're going through coffee plants, for example. And then they just have also have a lot of coffee products, but mostly they're just celebrating this product that's so important to them, to their culture and to their economy. You know, everyone who's come back from Colombia has just raved about it. And so I think that's a uh, that's another good, you know, vote for Colombia. I um and Bogota is like a foodie capital. So if you're if you're interested in food, you're interested in coffee, um, mm-hmm. you know, Colombia is a place to go. Rebecca, you're also the New York City director of an organization called Not Just Tourists. Um, can you tell me about this organization um, that you're director for in New York City? New York City is a very recent chapter of about a 30-year-old organization called Not Just Tourists, which originally started in Canada. We collect surplus medical supplies, which is basically to say that things that would be thrown away in our system, um, which generates a lot of waste and usable items, we collect the medical supplies and also actually donated suitcases, which were not another thing that we are sort of stopping it from being thrown away and pack the medical supplies in the suitcases. And then tourists who are going to abroad uh, can take a suitcase with them to give back to the community that they're visiting. So it's a good way to give back and also have a direct personal uh, connection to somebody where you're visiting, try to bridge a bit the gap between tourists and locals in different places. When you talk about medical supplies, do you mean devices or do you mean medicine and drugs? So we don't do medicine and drugs, which does get in oftentimes to issues with different countries, legality um, and the not great idea of uh, taking items like that into other countries uh, as a non-medical professional, even sometimes as a medical professional. A lot of what we supply is, uh, yes, it's the other thing. So uh, The biggest things are things that are, you know, one use or ideally one use. So syringes, band-aids. I mean, we do a lot. We do a lot with band-aids. There's so many different kinds of band-aids. But really birthing kits, uh, the supplies that go around that are not medicine, uh, you know, so that can really be, um, uh, again, anything from face masks and gloves, uh, not coat. Well, they could be used for COVID, I guess. But, you know, the kinds that doctors wear um, to, uh, again, the tubing that goes on IVs or the bags that go on IVs, but not what fills them. So we don't give people medicines to take. There are some other organizations that do that, but we are not involved with that. Are there any issues with folks going through customs or legal issues of, you know, because you've got tourists who are carrying bags of of medical supplies. Um, Does anyone get nervous? And is there ever an issue uh, going (laughs) going over borders? Sometimes people do get nervous. We do talk to everyone directly. You know, when we get the suitcase, we go through what 
the process with them. We give them paperwork to give to customs in the other country if they're asked any questions. We very rarely have issues. Um, you know, our general number, we don't have official statistics, but is that less than 2% of uh, travelers run into any issues. And we do advise if the customs in the other country gives you any issues or as you know, has, has a problem with it to just give in and give them the suitcase. My life advice to anyone traveling internationally, if customs in another country has an issue with something you're doing, do not fight back. <laughs> just let mm-hmm. them win. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's sort of our stance um, on this topic as well. But honestly, most people are very accepting and they're glad that you are bringing things in to help people, especially medical supplies that are often really needed. We recommend people take them to as rural of areas as possible, as those are often the most underserved areas in any country. But, you know, most people are very happy to be part of the process and issues are rare. What kind of places do uh, most of your suitcases wind up uh, going to? So a big part of how our process works is that most products, most of the suitcases, you know, they're people going to those places anyway. And our locations are all over Canada, some in the U.S. and one or two in the U.K. So a lot of ours go to the Caribbean, um, including Cuba, as well as to Mexico. Some do go to Africa or Eastern Europe or uh, Southeast Asia. Again, it, it's really the location of the, the countries in the world that people go to are really dependent on where they're traveling anyway. Within that country, we do recommend as rural of locations as possible and that people directly take them. We ask people directly to take them to medical clinics or hospitals. So there's no intermediary. You know, the people receiving the supplies are nurses who are going to end up using them. Well, it's a it's a great organization. If folks want to get in touch with either you in New York or the National Chapter of Not Just Tourists, uh, how would they do so? The great first stop is our website, njt.net. Again, it's njt, like not just tourists.net. Um, it's, uh, you'll see on there much more information about the organization, ways to contact different chapters if you want to donate supplies or if you want to talk take a suitcase. I personally can be reached at nyc at njt.net. I know that's a lot of N's, but just like NYC for New York City at njt.net to answer any questions you might have about the organization or if you'd like to get involved, take suitcases. Um, The amount of donations of medical supplies we get is really overwhelming, not in a like, oh, we can't handle it sense, but in a sort of emotional sense to realize how much you're stopping from going into landfills and how much we could be giving to people in other areas who really need it. So, you know, please consider if you are going to a country with that's less well resourced, taking a suitcase with you. Um, And, you know, we're not everywhere in the US yet, but we you know, to, do try to accommodate people as well as possible. And I will definitely shout out in Southern California, there are um, program directors who have been involved for longer than I have and really have developed an incredible network around the whole sort of Southern part of California in terms of getting out suitcases. Well, Rebecca Chauval, it's been great talking to you about coffee all around the world. We've covered South America <laughs> and Africa, and we've been in Europe tasting coffee in Southeast Asia and Hawaii. Uh, th- this has been a, a great <laughs> little trip around the world uh, in a coffee cup. 
And also, it's been inspiring to hear about your work with not just tourists. Thank you so much for being on Destination Eat Drink. It's been great talking to you today. Thank you. It's been lovely talking to you as well. Okay, that's Rebecca Chauvel. If you want to get involved with not just tourists or just learn more about the organization, I've got a link in the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash DED254. And that's it for this week. Next week, we're in Venice for delicious little plates called Cicchetti. If you're planning on going to Venice ever, you don't want to miss this. My guest has all kinds of itineraries for how you can enjoy a great foodie time in Venice. Until then, get over to DestinationEatDrink.com. I just posted a foodie travel guide to the city of Lule in the Algarve region of Portugal. It's away from the resorts and the golf courses of the Algarve and is home to a cool little castle as well as a delicious pastry. Get that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash Lule. That's L-O-U-L-E. I also just posted a video about a famous cocktail in Milan that may or may not have been invented by accident. You can see that by clicking on the video tab at DestinationEatDrink.com or by going to YouTube at DestinationEatDrink946. Also, while you're at DestinationEatDrink.com, sign up for our monthly newsletter to keep up on all things food and travel. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and Ed Silla, a guy who tops off his morning cup of coffee with a shot of scotch, except there's no coffee. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. <laughs>